0: Well, Merry Christmas. It's, uh, it's so good to know that there are so many who are ready and willing to spend their Christmas Eve with God's people. Thinking one last time about, my son asked me why we were going to church on Saturday because we were driving. And I said, well, we want to spend one last time before Advent is over um, to remember what we're doing. So I'm grateful that there's so many who are ready to do that. Uh, over the next few minutes, what I want to do is specifically look at how the New Testament answers the ache and the groaning of the Old Testament. And specifically, I want us to see how it is the son of David who answers that groan. There's a million different angles we could come at this little sermon from. Uh, there's a million different ways we could, we could come at this. But what I want to do specifically is to consider how the Son of David answers or satisfies the groaning of the Old Testament. So two passages that we're going to be in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm 89. 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89. I realize probably not what you think of that when you think of classic Christmas texts. Uh, neither of those may come to mind, but uh, trust me, these these two will help us to see the groaning of the Old Testament, and then we may see how Christ satisfy that. Before we can marvel at what the angels say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Before we can marvel at that, we need to feel the weight of the groan that the Son of David has come to satisfy. It's hard to appreciate a gift unless that gift answers some kind of satisfaction or longing or desire. So these these are going to help us to see that groaning, the weight of the groan in the Old Testament and how does the son of David answer that groan? We're not going to read all of either of these passages. They're both quite long, so we're just going to uh, walk through them and I'll tell you when I'm going to read certain verses. Second Samuel 7 comes at the high point of David's reign. The ark is now back in Jerusalem. David has made the capital there in Jerusalem. The Philistines, who have been up to this point, Israel's greatest foe, have been defeated and pushed back. And there is rest from their enemies. And now, in this situation, David recognizes a problem. Second Samuel 7, 1 through 3. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. David, David recognizes a problem. Something seems to be wrong here. I am living in this house of cedar, this, this palace while the ark of God is dwelling in a tent, the ark was still in the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle that God would have instructed the people to construct after they left Egypt while they were wandering in the land. So not only is this a, a, a tent, a mobile sanctuary, it's a 500 year old tent. And David recognizes in his humility this discrepancy. He's in a, a house, a palace made of cedar, while The Lord is dwelling in a tent. So he announces his desire, I will build a fitting house for the Lord. He doesn't say those words, but that's what David is getting at. And later it's confirmed this is a good desire of David. But nevertheless, the Lord says no. In verses four through seven, God responds. The, the, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, said, go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? God answers and said, You're gonna build me a house? Have I ever asked for a house? Now again, this is a good desire for David, but God says, No. The obvious answer is, God has not asked for a house. God denies David this desire, and we realize that now God is talking about a different kind of house. When David said, I dwell in a house of cedar, he was talking about his palace. The house that he wanted to build for God was a temple. We're going to see a third kind of house here in a minute, but there's two kinds of houses so far, a house, a palace, and a temple. And after God denies this desire of David, what we get in the next nine verses are what we call the Davidic covenant. This is God's covenant with David. Not only does God tell David, no, he one-ups him one ups him, and says, this is what I'm going to do. God tells David in verse 11, you wanted to build me a house? In verse 11, he says, the Lord will make you a house. There's now the third type of house in the passage. Not a palace, not a temple, but a dynasty. God tells David, I will make you a house. I will make you into a dynasty. This is the covenant God is making with David. And this, I need to impress upon you the significance of this passage. From the time Israel comes into the promised land and they're settled, So by the time the book of Joshua is over to the rest of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7 is the most important passage of the entire rest of the Old Testament. From the time they move into the promised land to the time the Old Testament ends, this is the high point of the rest of the Old Testament because of this promise. God is making a promise to David. This is the apex of the Old Testament from the time they arrive in the promised land. And this covenant centers around three things. And remember this because we're going to refer to it over and over again over the next few minutes. The first thing this promise entails is a place appointed, verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place. The second thing is peace secured in verse 10 and 11. They will be disturbed no more Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So a place appointed, peace secured, and the last and most important part of this is a throne established. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. A place appointed, peace secured, and a throne established. That is the the three parts of this so important covenant. This is what makes David the most significant king in Israel's history. With this covenant, God refocuses the entire redemptive arc of the Bible is refocused on David. David will be the foundation from which the rest of the story of the Bible will spring. And it will come from these words in 2 Samuel 7. So, Before we turn to Psalm 89, God's covenant with David is the high point of the Old Testament from the time Israel is established in the land. And this covenant is made up of three promises. A place appointed, peace secured, and a throne established. Now turn with me to Psalm 89. As we turn there, we're not really leaving 2 Samuel 7 because Psalm 89 is a reflection on God's covenant with David in Second Samuel 7. It's written by a man named Ethan the Ezraite. And he reflects on God's covenant in light of the rest of Israel's history. So the first 37 verses of this psalm, it's quite long, 52 verses. The, next th- the first 37 verses, the psalmist praises God as he recounts God's steadfast love to David. So I'm going to walk through and show you a few places how he, how he does this. Verses 3 and 4. Again, we're in Psalm 89. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build a throne for all generations. Second Samuel 7:12 said, God said, I will raise up your offspring. I will establish your throne. Now Ethan says, I will establish your offspring and build your throne. Now verses 19 through 23. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. And strike down those who hate him. God said, Second Samuel 7. You will not be disturbed. You will not be afflicted. You will have rest from his enemies. Ethan recounts David. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes. And strike down those who hate him. You see how he's paralleling what God promised in 2 Samuel 7. Now verse 24. Ethan writes. He's, he's speaking of God here. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. God said my steadfast love will not depart from you. He told David in Second Samuel 7. Here, Psalm eighty nine twenty four. My faithfulness and steadfast love shall be with him. Now, Psalm 89, 28 through 33. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Now, here, Ethan is paralleling something we did not pick up in 2 Samuel 7. Because there, God tells David in verses 14 and 15, when your son commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Very next word. But... My steadfast love will not depart from him. In the same pattern we saw in Psalm 89, both God and 2 Samuel 7, and Ethan is recounting God in Psalm 89, saying, your son David will transgress my law. He will commit iniquity, iniquity but when he does, my steadfast love will not be removed from David. And listen to what God says in Psalm 89, 34 to 36. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. God swears by his own holiness. This is not something to be trifled with. It's as if God says my promise to David will fail when I stop being holy. Holy. There's only one attribute in God, of God in Scripture, by the way, that gets repeated three times. We never hear in Scripture that God is love, love, love. We never hear that God is righteous, righteous, righteous. But we do hear that God is holy, holy, holy. And it's by this holiness that he swears, I will not lie to David. David. So these first 37 verses of Psalm 89, Ethan rehearses God's steadfast love to David as promised in Second Samuel 7. And he praises God for this love. Verse 1, Ethan said, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. And then 36 verses of God's love to David. That was the first half of the psalm. But then we get this shock to the system in verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant, you have defiled his crown in the dust. The God who just said, I will not violate my covenant, Ethan now says, you have renounced the covenant. God said, I will establish his throne for all generations, in verse 4. And now Ethan says, you have defiled his crown in the dust, verse 89. And you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. Verse 44. God said, You will be protected from your enemies. And then Ethan says in verse 40 and 41, You have breached all his walls. Speaking of David, you have breached David's walls. You have laid his stronghold in ruins. All who pass by plunder him, and David has become the scorn of his neighbors. God said, I will not remove my steadfast love from him. And then Ethan says in verse 49, where, O oh Lord, is your steadfast love? What happened? In this second half of the psalm, Ethan laments all three aspects of God's promise in 2nd Samuel 7. God promised a place. And now all the enemies have invaded our place and laid it in ruins. God promised peace and now all who pass by plunder him and he has become the scorn of his neighbors. And God promised a son on the throne but now the crown is defiled and the throne is cast to the ground. What happened? What happened to go from verse 34 I will not violate my covenant to verse 39 you have renounced the covenant. Well The rest of Israel's history is what happened. So let me just give you a brief recap of the next 400 years after God spoke to David in 2 Samuel 7. You see, two generations after David, the kingdom splits. Conflict is ignited over the foolishness of David's grandson, Rehoboam. And now you have two separate kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. In the north, they plunge almost immediately into an idolatry from which they never recover. And 200 years is a history of successive kings that only lead Israel further and further and further away from the God of their fathers. God's patience lasts for about 200 years until his judgment falls on them in the form of the kingdom of Assyria and they don't even get the grace of exile. They are erased from the face of the earth. You can read that in Second Kings 17. 10 of the 12 tribes are gone. This was not a a six and six split. It was 10 tribes went with the north and only Judah and Benjamin remained in the south. So the northern kingdom, because of their idolatry, is gone. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom fares only slightly better. A handful of God-fearing kings help the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, to persist for about 350 years. But they also practice things even more wicked than the surrounding nations, and they forsake also the God of their fathers, and they follow after the, gods, uh, the kings of the northern kingdom. Let me just read you this summary of the evil of Manasseh. King of Judah. Second Kings 21. Manasseh rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, who was probably the second greatest king of Israel, his father, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and he made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the name of the house of, in the, in the, house of the Lord. The temple. He built altars to other gods. He burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. What did God say would happen when David's son commits iniquity? I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So the, the southern kingdom too receives the just punishment for their sin in the form of exile at the hand of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the situation that Ethan sees when he writes Psalm 89. To lament, nothing looked like what you promised to David. Nothing looks like what it's supposed to be. This is the biggest issue of the Old Testament. This is the problem that the prophets are wrestling with. This is the problem the people of Israel are up against in the Old Testament. Nothing looks like what you promised to David. Where is your steadfast love? And, and just to, to bring this home, the, the groan of Psalm 89 reaches its zenith when the southern kingdom of Judah finally falls to Babylon. Remember, the three parts of the covenant. A place and peace and a son on the throne. When Judah falls, Zedekiah is king. You can read of this in Second Kings 25. Babylon gathers all of Zedekiah's sons... And they slaughter all of them while the king is made to watch. Then they gouge out the king's eyes. So the last thing that the last king of the last kingdom of Israel ever sees is being plundered by his enemies. No more peace. Being removed from the land. No more place. And all of his descendants slaughtered. No more son on the throne. This is the groan of the Old Testament. God swore by his holiness to David, peace and a place and a son on the throne, and in the course of 400 years, there is no peace, there is no place, and all the available descendants have been slaughtered. It's no wonder Psalm 89 takes such a dark turn. It's no wonder Ethan has to ask, where is your steadfast love? You know, Advent is meant to be much more than just recognizing Old Testament verses and seeing where they're fulfilled in the New Testament. It's much more than just making the connection between different verses in the Bible. Advent is intended for us to feel the weight of this groan that we hear in Psalm 89 of people longing for God's promise to David to be fulfilled because it seems like, as far as they can tell, it's the exact opposite. Now, Ethan doesn't blame God. He knows this has happened because of our sin. God promised as much. God said this would happen, and it did, but it only causes them to groan all the more. You might feel that groan all too well. You might feel what you might know what it what it feels like to say, "Where is your steadfast love?" Ethan writes in in Psalm in verse forty six of that Psalm, "How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever?" If you ask those kinds of questions of the Lord, you're in good company because that's what all the prophets were asking. That's the question: What happened to your steadfast love that you swore? To David. So they asked and they waited until an announcement. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his Father. David, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. How many of you thought of Psalm 89 when Jared read those words just a minute ago? David's true son is coming. That's what the angel is announcing to Mary. David will have a son on the throne and that throne will be established forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And after another announcement, nine months later, out in the fields outside of Bethlehem, we hear this, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. This son will work salvation for his people. His name means salvation and he will make peace by the blood of his cross when he comes to die three decades later. And he will build a house, not a physical one like Solomon did, but he will build a house in himself. You see, this this son will, will gather a people to himself, a people who, by the way, pursue idols just like the kings of Judah and Israel. He will yet still gather those people to himself, work peace in them by the blood of his cross and build them into a house that he promised David in 2 Samuel 7. Ephesians 2 says that in Christ, the saints of God are being joined together into a temple in the Lord. In him, the saints are being built together into a dwelling place. What did David want to build? A dwelling place for God. He wanted to build God a house. And God did let David's son build a house. It ended up being temporary. Temporary. But God had other plans to build his people into a house for himself to dwell in. See, Ethan captured the groan of the Old Testament. Where is your steadfast love which you swore to David? What happened to peace and a place and a forever throne? And the New Testament answers loudly and gloriously, His steadfast love is in the baby born this day in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. This baby is the Lord Jesus himself. He will make peace by the blood of his cross. He will make his people into a house, into a dwelling place, so that no matter what physical place they plant their feet, they will be in the Lord's place. And his throne will be established forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end because he is the one Paul writes of in Philippians 2, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord forever. The peace and the place and the forever throne are found in the baby. So to Ethan's groan, God answers, my promise to David was not in vain. My steadfast love did not depart from him because it was fully and finally revealed in the son of the Son of David, the baby Jesus. And by the way, the New Testament wastes no time at giving us this answer to the groan because the very first line of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1, this is the genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Son of David. The answer to the groan comes in the very first line of the New Testament. Waste no time getting there. So the question for all of us this season is, is our hope in the son of David? Is it set on the son of David? Apart from him, there is only vanishing from the face of the earth like Israel. There is only judgment. There is only exile apart from the son of David. But if our hope is set in the son of David, then we can say with Ethan how he ends Psalm 89, blessed be the name of the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We do groan in this fallen world. None of us need to be reminded that we still must groan. But Just like the Old Testament saints waited patiently and they waited faithfully for the son of David, so do we because that son of David told us, I am going to prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will take you to myself in that so that where I am you may also be. So we wait still. We groan sometimes still. Still for the son of David. And as I, as I tell our students and our kids here all the time, not to come back as a baby, but this time to come back as a king. The son of David is the answer to the groaning of the Old Testament. And when we look to him, we're reminded to wait for his return with hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for not abandoning your own covenant. Thank you for your steadfast love which you swore to David. God, help us to remember that when we look around and we see times like Ethan Saul, and we're, we, we ask the question, where is your steadfast love which you swore to us? God, I pray that you would help us to wait with hope, to wait in faith like the true saints of Israel did that we read of in Hebrews 11. Although they had not seen the things promised to them, they they grasped them from afar as if they were already here. God, help us to live that way. Help us to wait now patiently and faithfully for the return of the son of David, not as a baby, but as a king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.